How does a Forbes 30 under 30 boy genius get dubbed the most hated man in America? How about hiking up the price of a life-saving drug by 5,000%? Martin Shkreli, nicknamed Pharma Bro, has become the face of Big Pharma. Amidst other scandals, Shkreli rose to fame after his company, Turing Pharmaceuticals, acquired the rights to Daraprim, a drug used to treat a deadly infection in patients with HIV. Following the acquisition, the cost of the drug skyrocketed from $1350 to $750. Is Shkreli just a bad egg? Or is he one manifestation of Big Pharma's underlying dynamics when dealing with life-saving therapies? You're listening to the Hashtag Health Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Neil Johnson, an oncology and palliative care pharmacist at London Health Sciences Centre. He's also the Vice President of Cancer Care for London Health Sciences Centre and Regional Vice President of Southwest Regional Cancer Program for Cancer Care Ontario. The Hashtag Health Podcast is generously funded by the University Students' Council at Western University and the Canadian Federation of Medical Students. Please note that the content of this podcast in no way constitutes medical advice. For any health-related concerns, please contact your physician. It's no secret that pharmaceuticals is a profit-driven industry. According to data compiled at the Stern School of Business at New York University, the pharmaceutical industry has the 10th highest after-tax profit levels in the U.S., with some of the top-ranking industries including tobacco and software. In order to achieve these profit margins, what tricks do pharmaceutical companies have up their sleeve to market their product? When I first graduated, you know, 30 years ago as a pharmacist, there was no direct consumer advertising. That was sort of verboten, right? Uh, now, direct-to-consumer advertising, particularly in the States, but it bleeds over into Canada, is is everywhere, right? And why do they do that? Because it works, right? Literature shows that to change physician behavior, the best way to ch- change physician behavior, the single most effective way, is to use a patient as an influencer, right? So that's, that's why direct-to-consumer advertising works. Um, you've seen the growth in that over the years. That works well, and it's proven to work well. Uh, the traditional tactics of the pharma rep coming with their box of drugs and their glossy portfolios and and pamphlets and so forth certainly works and they've worked a long time with um with looking at the data that they get from pharmacies to monitor your prescribing habits etc and you know try to move you around that so they have access to all of that data as well too and that works well um buying trips that also works well etc but there's um and that that part of it has changed through some self-regulation in the industry but there are lots of subtle ways i mean funding patient advocacy groups disease-based advocacy groups. Again, patients can speak wonderfully to providers and governments to change behaviors, right? And so there's that aspect of it. And then there are some things that are just sort of, um, I wouldn't say immoral or illegal or unethical, but certainly awkward. You know, starting with a a drug, um, giving it out for free for an ocular condition, um, which, you know, when you do that, you only treat one eye, you don't treat both. And then uh, getting the market seated with that and then changing the compensation model saying that, okay, now it's no longer free. So if you want to get the benefit in your other eye, you're going to have to pay up the money for that. I mean, that's a real example that's, that's uh, you know, 20 years old, but that happens. So there are a number of market seeding strategies. Usually it's free product, right? Get used to it, get liking it, get prescribing it, um, get on the good side of the, of the dock and so forth. And so there's a lot of behavioral influence that uh, pharmaceutical companies use, right? And it's interesting the perspective. Some docs, in my estimation, and this would go to pharmacists, nurses, other places, say that there's no influence. 
but yet repeatedly there's lots of studies in the literature that shows that there is influence, right? And the influence does change their behavior. Uh, if it didn't, if they're in a business, so if they find a tactic that doesn't work, they're not going to spend the money on it, right? So they, they do know how to change behaviors for sure. Surely the tactics are working. According to the Journal of the American Medical Association, between 1997 and 2016, the pharmaceutical industry's marketing budget in the U.S. grew from $18 billion to $30 billion. Direct-to-consumer advertising is prohibited in Canada, but in the U.S. it accounted for the most rapid growth, while marketing to healthcare professionals accounted for the biggest fraction of overall spending. In Canada between 2017 and 2018, the top 10 largest pharmaceutical companies spent $151 million to doctors and hospitals across the country, and they've come up with some sophisticated strategies for influencing doctors' prescribing habits. Any rep going into a GP's office knows exactly what that, that doctor's prescribing because they have the, the uh, reports from the companies that mine that data and they know exactly what they're trying to do. Um, I don't think they come out and say, you know, I'm going to give you a, you know, a, a year's worth of donuts for your clinic uh, in response, you know, in, in changing your prescribing habits. They're far uh, more sophisticated around that. But, you know, it's everything from, you know, can I get you uh, some money for, you know, uh, doing something in your clinic to, um, you know, buying you a good dinner for an educational event that you guys are actually putting on. You know, there's the rubber chicken circuit that, you know, people have done for, for many years and so forth around that. Um, and they do it from various ways. I mean, for hospitals, they'll appeal to the foundation. So the charitable, you know, foundations that are associated with hospitals around, you know, funding research or funding education. Um, and that's less about philanthropy as opposed to market. Uh, and, I, and I've been in those conversations where the um, companies have said, you know, um, yeah, we'll certainly give you a donation to your charitable arm of your hospital, but you know we want you to sign a contract with us, and that becomes just a non-starter. But it, it, some of them are quite uh, quite open about that, right? Um, it's become more sophisticated over the years, but a lot of them just it's, it's just the way of the business. I'll give you a donation. I'll give you a donation for research for the docs that are in particular areas. And I would say it's not just limited to pharmaceutical companies. This is for medical device companies. Medical device companies probably even have a, um, a more checkered past than some pharmaceutical companies do with that in terms of, you know, will, we'll, um, you know, you buy this big piece of equipment um, um, with the public taxpayer dollars and we'll give you back some research dollars to do the types of things that you actually want to do. An important systematic difference between the two countries is transparency. In the U.S., any transfer of value to a doctor exceeding $10 must be publicly disclosed by law in full detail on a searchable website. Whereas in Canada, there is no legislation compelling drug companies to disclose their transactions with any specific doctors. The pharmaceutical industry's spending in marketing is about on par with its spending in research and development. These enormous costs help explain why a big problem facing Canada and the U.S. is the high cost of prescription drugs. But the purchase of drugs may not be the only way in which the public purse funds the industry. Um, the broader question of research and who pays for that, I mean, I think in the Canadian context, obviously when researchers come in, they give us research trials and so forth. There is some payment for that. Um, but you have to remember that the cost for adverse events, as an example, if somebody's on a trial, is largely borne by the health system. We don't really get paid for the fact that, you know, we've given a drug to a patient, they have an adverse event, they end up in our ICU or they end up in the emergency department or whatever. There's, there's sort of payment for the transaction of administering the drug, maybe getting a CAT scan or an MRI and so forth. But some of those other things are, are really part of the health system. And that has been an attractive 
um, part of the Canadian healthcare system for some research companies because then they can they don't have to pay for everything like they do in, in other centers. Um, the broader question, though, of piggy, piggybacking on publicly funded research, though, is is probably one that I've seen more in the states than in Canada. Right? I think mainly because there's a larger research platform in the states and more money spent in the public sector until recently in the in the, in the states on that. And um, it it does bear an ethical question, right? So what is that? Um, you know, you could you could go back to the discovery of insulin, right? Banting and Best sold their patents for insulin to the University of Toronto for a dollar, right, with the intent of broadly making that drug available as a life-saving treatment. Would that happen today? I, I don't think so, right? So, um, and yet Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk have made lots of money off of insulin over the years from that $1 patent sale. Pfizer CEO Ian Reid said in an appearance at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., Canada is cheaper because it free rides off American innovation. But as it turns out, Pfizer and other big pharma companies may be doing some free riding of their own. The story of insulin that Dr. Johnson mentioned starts in the early 1920s when Frederick Banting and Charles Best discovered the molecule, later purified by James Collip, under the directorship of John McLeod at the University of Toronto. Banting and Best wanted this life-saving drug to be widely accessible and sold the patent to the university for a dollar. Unfortunately, their philanthropic mission was interrupted in 1972 when the patent found its way from the hands of the university to the hands of big pharma companies Sanofi, Eli Lilly, and Novo Nordisk. Now, a vial of insulin costs $300 in the US and $32 in Canada. In June 2017, Bentley University professor Fred Ledley and his colleagues identified which of the 210 drugs developed since 2010 in the US piggybacked on publicly funded research. So which drugs came up? All of them. Which raises the question, if the public purse is funding research that leads to the production of these drugs by big pharma companies, do they have a right to affordable prices in order to get a return on their investment? And does the cost of innovation justify exorbitantly high drug prices? So if I had transparency of information from the pharmaceutical industry, I could probably answer that clearly, right? And, and there's a couple of things, you know, we talked earlier about direct-to-consumer advertising, right? Um, ph many pharmaceutical companies spend as much in direct-to-consumer advertising as they do in research. So part of my question would be is maybe if you cut back on direct-to-consumer advertising, you'd actually have a more, you'd actually make more money or you'd have a, a more affordable medication. Um, I think... The other part of that is, and the you know, pharmaceutical companies will say, well, you know, we start off with 100 molecules just to get to one that we market at that. And I, I challenge them back and say, so basically I'm paying for your ineffective research techniques that, you know, starts too wide and doesn't get focused enough. So I, I, I think it's a, too simplistic an argument. I mean, I, I'd, I'd say, you know, what's your return on sales overall? What's the life cycle of the entire molecule? Um, if you only did it once without various patents that we talked about, patent extensions that we talked about, I might give you that. So I don't think it's the only reason. And um, and again, with the other cases of ones that have been researched on public sector dollars, there's no case to be made there for sure. So I don't I don't necessarily buy that. I think there's a happy medium for them to make money on that. And, and I'm not against them. I'm, I'm not a anti-capitalist in any stretch of the imagination, but I don't buy that it's just about the research piece, right? So because there's lots of wasted money in research, I can guarantee it. The drug industry often claims that prices need to be high to cover the cost of innovation. Data from Boston University seems to support this claim by showing how developing a new drug on average takes 10 to 15 years and costs 2.6 billion US dollars. 
However, Dr. Johnson is saying that high research and development costs may be the consequence of ineffective research techniques. He also mentioned that these costs are only half of the story, with direct-to-consumer advertising costs also being a major contributor to high drug prices. Now let's shift our discussion to cancer. Cancer is the leading cause of death in Canada, while it still ranks second after cardiovascular disease in the US. What's the payment model for these life-saving drugs in Canada? So it's, it's really interesting. I mean, if you start at the overall level of the federal government, um, you know, there's um, a process to get drugs licensed, and that just makes that they're safe and that they can be used, right? Uh, then it's up to the provinces to set how they're going to pay for it and what prices they'll pay for that, right? There is a, a pan-Canadian oncology drug review process that takes a look at oncology medications and makes recommendations to the various provinces about whether they should be paid for or not. In Ontario, we have a very slick model. It's actually quite good at least for intravenous drugs that are administered in cancer centers. So uh, we partner with the program at Evidence-Based Care, plus, uh, which is at McMaster, plus P. Coder. And a CCO, Cancer Care Ontario, who is the provincial cancer agency, uh, looks at new drugs coming out and uses a scientific rigorous methodology, an evidence-based methodology to say, okay, what should they invest in and how should they invest in that? And so what happens is every couple of weeks, we get updates of new drugs or changes in indications and regimens, and we get funded specifically for those drugs for those indications. So if a patient's not, doesn't meet the criteria, we don't actually get funded for it. So it really takes, one, some of the guesswork out. Um, it sometimes challenges clinicians because sometimes guidelines and specific clinical trial, trial criteria don't exactly match what the patient's circumstance are. So they have to use some judgment with that, and we do have some things that uh, we may pay for um, out of our own hospital budget. But it's really... I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, $40 million worth of cancer chemotherapy expenditures for a hospital, right? So it's, it's a fairly substantial amount. Um, the rest of the market, though, is very disparate. Uh, different provinces do different things. And again, in Ontario, if you're taking home um, cancer medications, oral medications, or what have you, which is really where a lot of the market's going, it's private payers, it's some government insurance, it's really a patchwork quilt. The P-Coder weighs scientific evidence to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of newly developed cancer drugs and in turn provides recommendations to provinces about which drugs to pay for. Out of 17 cancer drugs developed since January 2015, it provided recommendations against six of them. Some of those on the approved list are breakthrough pioneer drugs like ipilimumab, an antibody that unleashes our body's own immune system to fight cancer cells. However, it is easier for companies to develop new drugs that have slight improvements over those already circulating. The result is a massive misuse of investments devoted to cancer research. An interesting thing to note is that cancer drugs, which are often biologics, are much more challenging to copy than most other drugs on the market. Drugs that are chemically synthesized can be easily replicated down to the atom into a generic variant. But biologics are made by cellular processes inside organisms. Therefore, copies of these drugs, called biosimilars, can only be identical to the pioneer if the cell culture instructions are followed precisely. Sharing these instructions would be like Mr. Krabs giving Plankton the Krabby Patty secret formula. Since biosimilars are practically never identical to the pioneer drugs, there are more hurdles for them to enter the market and thus competitively drive down prices. There seems to be a, a fair big uh, degree of patent mining, you know, a different way of uh, doing this or doing that. I mean, I think when you take a look, and it may not be specifically a patent issue, but the whole issue of biosimilars is an interesting case in point. 
most of the drugs up until now, we've been able to make generic equivalents. So I've got a tablet of aspirin and I've got, you know, acetylsalicylic acid, 325 milligrams, a generic one. You know, you, you, you take a look at them and they're bioequivalent. Well, of course, in the biologics, you can't really say that because they're produced from fundamentally different methods. They may be genetically the same at the end, but the methods are, are what uh, makes them different. So we see, you know, those things being brought up by pharmaceutical companies. Do you trust what has, you know, how the other uh, companies been made that we see pricing drops to protect market share? So we commonly see that in hospitals where, you know, we're partic- we've used an innovator's quote-unquote manufacturer's molecule for a number of years because they're the only ones on. A biosimilar comes out. Our price goes down to $1 per vial from, you know, $100 per vial of the existing drug just to protect market share because if you can get people using them in hospitals then they'll be still be able to be marketed outside um, and used outside the hospital and they'll still be able to protect their market share so so you know the biosimilars is interesting but certainly in the more commonplace drugs or the um, commonly manufactured drugs more easily manufactured drugs there's lots of different patents that are are tried to be dredged out to protect that uh, protect that piece Another recent trend for pharmaceutical companies is treating rare diseases. The Orphan Drug Act was passed in 1983 to encourage development of drugs for rare diseases that affect fewer than 200,000 people, like cystic fibrosis, Tourette syndrome, or hamburger disease. Drugs that meet the criteria are rewarded with tax incentives, research subsidies, and extended market exclusivity. It certainly sounds enticing. The public purse is really not looking to develop new ways to treat, um, you know, very common diseases, right? It's those it's those rare diseases that seem to be the ones that really um, garner that publicly funded research support. So, and and of those, I mean, you know, how many of those actually get to a drug that's actually on the market, right? There's a huge pipeline of research that goes on with molecules that never meet the the light of day or never don a pharmacy shelf or a or a hospital. Some of the mature companies, you know, the Pfizer's of the world, the Eli Lilly's of the world, they're not really into that sort of rare disease market. They've got platforms around cancer. You know, Roche has a cancer platform as an example, or they may have a a hypertension platform or what have you, right? So I don't think it sort of hits uh, there. I think where you're seeing it is more in the the small startup biologic companies that are really sort of, um, you know, ramping up and finding these new ones. They seem to be very focused on rare diseases only. Um, and, And that one... That bears a lot of um, really soul-searching issues from a public payer perspective in Canada, for sure. You know, Spinraza is an example, one that I have familiarity with because I have a, a family member who has the disease. You know, $375,000 a year for a drug, $750,000 a year for the first year. You know, should we pay for that for a very limited sector of the population? Should we not? It's hard to ration at the bedside. And, you know, as clinicians, you know, you don't want to be rationing at the bedside. Physicians should be, you know, advocating for their patients, but some societal questions have to be asked around that, and and that's where I see on the on the rare disease market that that ability to pay is really starting to stretch the Canadian system and, and forcing us to some very awkward and uncomfortable dialogue. The incentives offered by the Orphan Drug Act are so favorable when compared to the traditional drug approval process that the result is a disproportionate shift in focus. Between 2015 and 2016, 45% of the new drugs approved by the FDA were for treating rare diseases that affect less than 10% of the population. Further concerns raised by critics address the negative consequences of the incentives. For example, the lack of generic competition in the market 
allows companies to demand higher prices for drugs, which are actually developed using cheaper methods that avoid the quality assurance of large-scale clinical trials required for the traditional pathway. To make matters more complicated, the advent of molecular genetics is blurring the line between rare and common diseases. For example, cancer used to be thought of as a fairly homogeneous disease, differentiated for the most part only by the affected organ. Now, specific gene mutations are being identified that produce distinct disease state phenotypes within the broad category of cancer. And in turn, targeted therapies are being developed that are only effective for subsets of patients with specific mutation profiles. Over time, as these subsets become smaller and more numerous, looking at the number of patients with a certain disease may become an outdated approach for the Orphan Drug Act. So, pharmaceutical companies love to treat diseases that affect very few people. But, could they treat a disease that affects no people? What we mean to say is that it might actually not be ideal for the industry's bottom line to put out curative treatments. In April 2018, Goldman Sachs analysts wrote a report to their biotech clients titled The Genome Revolution. In this report, the writer advises biotech firms against developing curative treatments that decimate their own market. The analyst cited Gilead Sciences' treatment for hepatitis C, Harvoni, as an example of a drug that achieved cure rates of 90% when it came out in 2014. Its sales peaked at $14 billion in 2015, then it rapidly declined to a measly $4 billion in 2017. It's an interesting take. I mean, I think there's a take of an investor and, and what's best for the investment portfolio versus what's best for the science. And and I can't comment to say whether that type of thought process has changed the behavior of pharmaceutical companies. You know, I mean, I think in the in the days gone by, you would see, you know, where a pharmaceutical company is going to make more money. They're going to be making more money in the annuities of selling drugs over 20 years. So if I'm on, you know, Crestor and I'm going to be on it for 20 years as a middle-aged guy who's a little bit overweight with a cardiac history, you know, that's good money for them because they're going to have a customer who's going to be paying for that for a long term. Um, I think, and so, you know, I think um, companies have invested in those types of things. I don't know whether that's explicitly with the goal of saying I'm not going to do curative treatments or not. I can't speak on that, but certainly from an investment perspective, that makes sense. Um, and I think you see that in the, the shift to, you know, there's been really no novel antibiotics come out in the last decade, right? Um, and again, sort of episodic, limited use um, in uh, very specific settings as opposed to chronic disease. You can make more, more money in chronic disease for sure, right? If you keep people living longer and so forth. Um, you know, and I always come back to, I mean, uh, I always say the first rule of medicine is that no one lives forever, everyone dies. And the second rule is you can't change the first, right? So, um, you know, I, I think there is a public persona of saving lives, but I don't think um, the pharmaceutical industry is in it to save lives, so to speak. But, you know, some of the things that we have seen over the years have been blockbusters that have, you know, cured disease and moved disease out, right? Um, you know, um, we go back to the 1800s, people died of infectious diseases far more, right? Now, a lot of that was clean hygiene and, and good water, right? But vaccines, you know, um, that's a, a life-saving, if you will, um, type of uh, intervention. So um, I think I think the world of pharmaceutical industry has been far more monetized and driven by dollars now than it has been in the past. Before we finish off this episode, let's come back to our protagonist in the Big Pharma story, Martin Shkreli. Oh, and by the way, he also has a sidekick, Nirmal Moulier, 
CEO of Nostrum Laboratories, who increased the price of his antibiotic nitrofurantoin by 400%. You know, if you take a look at drug price increases on an aggregate basis, so, you know, pull out the Pharma Bro and the interesting things around that or the more recent one around nitrofurantoin, right? Um, you know, in the States, drug prices are going up, you know, 6 to 10% per year, um, far in a way above inflation growth, right? Um, and, you know, the more recent articles, I think it was in Forbes I was reading, you know, it's not based on new molecules, it's based on existing molecules and increasing the prices there. So I think cost escalation is a phenomenon that you see um, um, across the entire industry. Um, I think what we're finding, though, is that the industry has changed from um, a lot of blue chip companies, big pharmaceutical companies, to small companies, and also innovative um, investors who now see opportunities to do things in a different way. And it's almost like I mean, this is just my opinion. It's almost like they're breaking the code that they, that the industry has. You know, we we can make lots of money on this. We can increase prices, but this is really sort of a targeted, seemingly a targeted. And there's, there's not just one, right? There's a number of these ones that have come into the media. Um, some sort of different way of thinking about uh, pharmaceuticals. I mean, the the one the one that caught my eye was, you know, the 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 one who got in trouble with nitrofurantoin was. You know, it was my moral obligation to to raise the price the extent to I did, that I did, right? And I forget what the price increase was. It was like 400% or whatever, right? You wouldn't see that. Um, there would seem to be a code within the other organizations to not do that. But you're seeing a new entrant, I think, of entrepreneurs or, or investors that are willing to um, um, take that risk, uh, go over and above, and just say, I'm going to make the money on that. Um, somewhere in that, there seems to be some loss of moral compass, as, a, as an outsider looking in. So, um, and they're disrupting the industry. I mean, if you've got one person doing it, somebody else is going to try to do it as well too. Um, and the, the rest of the, the market, whether they're hospitals or providers or insurance companies, aren't prepared to deal with that. That's just seemingly using a different tactic than anybody's ever thought of, right? So very disruptive. There you have it, folks. Shkreli and Moulier may represent new players in a changing pharmaceutical landscape, it isn't fair to label all of Big Pharma as evil forces operating against the public good. To their credit, we wouldn't have the powerful arsenal against deadly diseases that we have today if it weren't for the industry's dynamics. Nevertheless, I think it's important that we recognize the mosaic of problems that emerge from profit-driven motives. If you enjoyed this episode of Hashtag Health, keep an eye out for an upcoming episode on the forces that drive the Canadian drug shortage, featuring Canadian Medical Hall of Famer Dr. Jacqueline Duffin. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Health. Please consider giving us a rating or a review and subscribing to our show. We'd like to thank Dr. Neil Johnson for his contributions to this episode. This episode was written and produced by me, Hugh Kim, and edited by Mary Nguyen. <laughs>